Good morning. Oh, you guys can do better than that. Good morning. There you go. It's good to hear God's people give testimony and sing. Uh, it's great. We're looking in the book of Ezra once again. We're in chapter 8, verses 15 through 20. And uh, this really has nothing to do with where we're going this morning, but I want to encourage you that now, more than ever, we need critical thinkers. Uh, when you watch the news, media, even in my own preaching, don't take my word for it. Be critical thinkers. Go back, look at the text. When someone claims something, make sure you're going back and looking at Look at it for yourselves. I think one problem we have in this country is that we have people just falling blindly without thinking for themselves. So use the brain that God gave you. We don't serve a, we don't serve a God. He doesn't expect us to have a mindless faith. We still have to put trust in Him. But there is a lot of, tr- there is truth to it. We need, we need to clean it. Claim it, excuse me. And, uh, with that said that some people Complain that expository preaching is not very practical. Practical. What I mean by expository is either going chapter to chapter, verse by verse, like we've done in Ezra, or you take a topic uh, and you look at one major text. Uh, it's not taking an idea and then running and pulling verses to support that thesis statement. It's going to the text and letting the text talk for itself. So it's a warning text. Preach it as a warning. If it's an encouraging, preach it as encouraging. So let the text drive everything about the sermon. But some complain that when you do that, you don't really touch people where they are. You don't give people day-to-day solutions that they need. Uh, Many preachers uh, combat this by that topical approach. They look for a perceived need, a felt need, and then they think about that felt need and come up with a solution. And they use all kinds of things to support their solution. Pop psychology, business methodology, and sales techniques. And most of the time, they'll even use scripture to support their solution. Whether or not that verse or verses is used in context doesn't really matter at that point. All that really matters is whether that felt need or needs is being met. Now, one result of this has uh, transpired as a how-to theology. Many sermons tell you X number of ways to do whatever. For example, five ways to find a better husband or ten ways to get out of debt. That may sound practical, even a little bit biblical. But most of the time, it ends up being very man-centered and ultimately does not honor God. In reality... There's nothing more practical than a text of Scripture. Because at their core, all our problems are the result of sin. No man-centered pop psychology, pragmatic how-to-do list can take care of sin. There is no kind of list that we can come up with that will empower us to pull us up our own bootstraps. God created our bootstraps, and he's the only one who's able to pull us up. And he does that through his all-sufficient power of his word. And since it is all-sufficient, it's the most practical book ever given to man. 
If the Bible is unable to touch people where they live, I certainly can't come up with something that will. It's my responsibility as an expository preacher and your responsibility as a student of his word, as you study, to figure out what the scripture objectively means. In other words, do the homework, what was happening as historical context, and then look at what happened and then say, okay, how does this apply to our lives? Which I've told you before, that is the hardest thing about preaching and teaching is walking through the text. Okay, this is what happened and then try to apply it to our lives. And it has amazed me and perhaps even you that when I decided to read or go through the book of Ezra, I had to do some more homework. But it seems like as this pandemic has gone on, the text, either directly or indirectly, is speaking to our situation. So we do not start by reading our life situation into the text. We start with what the text means. And, of course, us as believers, we have the Holy Spirit. He will open our eyes and shows us how the text does apply to our lives. Now, I had to say all that because where we're going this morning. Ezra is facing a problem in the text. He came up with a solution and ended its success. Now, from that, we can see how this godly leader dealt with a problem, and we can develop our how-to list. But like I said, before we come with a how-to list, we have to look at what's going on in the text and how Ezra took care of it. Starting in chapter 8, verse 15. Now, I'll send them at the river that runs to Ahava, were camped for three days, and when I observed the people and the priest, I did not find any Levites there. So I sent for Elizer, Ariel, Shema'ah, Elithan, Jerob, Elithan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshelam, leading men, and Fort Jerob, and Elithan teachers. I sent them to Adah, the leading man at the place is Kepha, and I told them what to say to Adah and his brothers. The temple servants at the place, that is, to bring ministers to us for the house of our God. According to the good hand of our God, upon us they brought us a man of insight, the sons of Hela, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and sons and brothers, 18 men. And Heshabah and Jeshua and the sons of Miriah, with his brothers and sons, 20 men. And 220 of the temple servants, whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, and all of them designated by name. And going back and looking, as I told you, you may want to go back and look at my pronunciation of those names. I did the best I could, very hard to pronounce. But we see a problem appear, don't we? Let's, let's look at the problem as we look at the text. So we need to deal with problems first and foremost by recognizing them. And we see that in verse 15. Now, how many people in this room like dealing with problems? I take it by no hands. That's nobody. And for people on the Internet, I guess we had a virtual way of raising your hands. Nothing's you wouldn't raise your hand either because we try. We, we don't like them. So we try to ignore them. But ignoring them makes them just get worse. Another way we we handle a problem is to overreact. And we end up attacking the symptoms of the problem rather than the real problem itself. That is probably the most common way that we as people handle our problems. However, Ezra did not do it that way. He recognized the problem for what it was. Think about it. Here's the picture. He is gathering the people up to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
Now remember, a remnant has already been there for about 80 years. And it was a much larger group than what Ezra is looking at right now. But here's the problem. It wasn't the size of the group. Look back in verse 15. What was the problem? Not one single Levite was among them. That was the problem. And this is something you could, you could not tell by just looking around. He had to inquire specifically about this. Perhaps he had a checklist as he was going through it to see. And he discovered that there was no Levites. And we may ask ourselves, well, what's the big deal? Well, Levites were specifically called by God to serve in the temple. They were set apart, set apart by God to assist the priests. Without the Levites, the priests would have to do all the work, which would keep them from doing their work that only they can do. Now, remember that. That's what's happening right now in the narrative as we're reading in the text. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, in the first remnant, there was a tremendous shortage of Levites there as well. There should have been ten times the number of Levites compared to priests in the first group back in chapter 2. There are actually less Levites than priests in that group. So here we are, 80 years later, with even a worse ratio. We don't know if Ezra had any priests with him, but we do know there was no Levites. And when he saw that, he knew God would not be pleased because they had work to do to allow the priests do their work. So he has a problem. There was also a problem here. Because it shows that not everyone was on board, but going back. Ezra runs right into the people's comfort and complacency. He correctly and clearly recognizes and identifies the problem. No Levites. You know, he could have looked at the group and said, we need more people. We need more of this or that. He didn't attack the system. He looked right at the real problem. No Levites. And it's here is where us as churches often make the same mistake. We are so quick to identify the problems. For example, if the pews are not filled, there's a problem. So we'll just quickly identify the problem, and as quickly as we do that, we jump right into the solution. How are we going to fill the pool? Well, the pews, excuse me. Let's change our style, change our decor. Maybe we need to employ a better marketing technique. Maybe we need to upgrade our facilities to make them more fun. Now, I'm not preaching against those things. All right, We need to upgrade our facilities. We take care of our buildings and stuff. We need to look at some new music that's out there, out there that's honoring God. But we can get so focused on the symptoms, we're missing the real problem. Are empty pews the real problem or just the symptom of the problem? Could the real problem be commitment, unrepentant sin, or bitterness? Could the real problem be a lack of brokenness before God? Could that be the problem? I always ask myself, God, how is my walk? Where am I? Why am I at with you? Because I could be a problem. I could be holding up. If I have unrepentant sin in my life, not only does it do, do damage to my relationship with God myself personally, but it can also have a corporate effect with the church. Old Testament example. Remember uh, Joshua and Jericho? Remember the story about Jericho? What a great victory that was. Maybe it didn't go down the way they thought it would be. As 
these guys were ready to attack and be military, but they marched around and the walls came down. So the next time they go to Ai, they're going to conquest that place. But before we get to that point, remember what God told them to do about Jericho. Take everything, kill everybody, but the gold and silver is mine. That's what Lord said. So get the AI, they don't take less people. They go and basically, for uh, purposes of time, I'll just say this. They got beat. They were defeated. Joshua's sitting there and he's tearing his clothes and throwing dust on it. So it was a sign of sorrow and bereavement back in the ancient times. And he's asking God, what went wrong? What happened? Why did this happen? And God said, there's sin in your camp. See so this guy named Achan, who took a little bit of gold and silver and he buried it. And when they found out it was him, what did they do? Not only they took out him and stoned him, but all of his family. See, sin has a way of not only affecting us, but affecting those around us. So are we looking at the real problem? Are we looking at a symptom of the problem? Ezra looked out over the people, and he saw the real problem. He identified it correctly. Now he has to fix it, which comes to our second point. Deal with problems by coming up with the right solution. That's the key, right solution. Coming up with solutions is not hard. Coming up with the right solution, however, can be a different story. He knew the problem about the Levites, so he sent people out to give, get them. That sounds simple, but notice he did not go himself. He sent people out to find them. Ezra could have gone himself, but that was not his primary responsibility. His primary responsibility goes back to his mission. We talked about his mission just a few weeks ago in chapter 7, verse 10. It said that Ezra had, to, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinance in Israel. His mission was to seek God's will, to do God's will, and to teach God's will. Was it God's will for the Levites to go and serve in the temple of Jerusalem? Of course it was. Ezra knew that. But why didn't Ezra go out and get them himself? How would that fulfill the third part of his mission? What would that teach the people, if anything? It could have taught them the wrong lesson altogether, that they were helpless, that big problems and big jobs only can be done by the big dogs themselves. Brother and sister, we've gotten ourselves in a lot of trouble in our local churches thinking that's the pastor's job, that's the deacon's job. We all have a responsibility, don't we? We all have a responsibility to make disciples. We all have a responsibility to share our faith. So Ezra teaching them not to be helpless, not to wait for him to do it. You go out and you find them. And not only does he just send them out, but he sends 11 people. And in verse 16, calls none of them leading men or chief men. They were important people. They were well-known, had influence. There were two others described as teachers or men of understanding. They knew where, they knew where the people were and what was going on. They possibly understood why the Levites had not come along, and they were able to present a very persuasive case to the Levites. They didn't go in force, but they're influential and persuasive. And he gets them, he sends them out with a very clear direction. He tells them where to go, who they're supposed to see when they get there, and what they're supposed to say. So Ezra not just sends them out so they go find them. He gives them specific 
parameters and direction. And these he chose to go had all the information they needed. They knew where to go. They knew the Levites. They knew what was going on. They could be persuasive, influential. So he sends them out. In his excitement, he didn't get caught up and forget his primary mission. He found the right people to send. He used them according to their gifts and abilities. He gave them clear direction. And they were willing to go and they went. They were faithful to do all they were asked. God honored their faithfulness. Maybe not in the way they hoped for, but in the way that honored his will and his name. That's why it's so important that we know what our gifts and talents are. Because my job as your pastor is to help you to get you equipped to do the work of ministry. So if I know what your gifts are, you come tell me, Tim, what can I do to help? Well, what's your gifts? Well, could you go over there and do that? Could you go over there and do that? Could you go over there and do that? You find the right people to solve the problem. Now, sometimes I have to do that as pastor, but hear my heart. I don't have the time or the energy, and I will get burned out if I run around putting fires out everywhere. This is, this is a congregation. We are working together. It's not a dictatorship. So we need to find up with the right solution and not just freak out. He could have freaked out. Couldn't he? Oh, we need more people. We need more of this. But he saw the problem and he dealt with the problem correctly. And lastly, we deal with problems by correctly identifying success. Now, this is where I fall short. Sometimes I look around and God is working, but it's not working in the way I think it should work. And I get the press go, well, where is everybody? Well, God's not here. Yeah, God is here. God is working. Just like that song says, even when we don't feel it or think it, God is always working. And and the question becomes, are we going to be on board with that? We're going to, but we're going to say, God, we want you to do this, but you need to do it this way, A, B, C, and D. God says, no, you don't tell me what to do. Tell me I'm going to do it. My way in a way which honors me. There's no question that we live in a a society that's obsessed with success. People talk about the bottom line and what all about is the numbers. But what is success? How would you define it? What was success for Ezra? Any way you look at the story, when when you look at the response of the Levites was pitiful. Eleven gifted men, talented men, went to go out to try to persuade them to come. And they went to this place, and we don't have any records of that place, Kesafia, but it's referred to, how it's referred to here tells us some things about it. Whenever the place is attached to a proper place name, it meant it was a type of Jewish sanctuary for them. And that was fairly common during the Babylonian exile. They were later become the synagogues that we see in the Gospel and Acts. Verse 17 refers to the leader as the leading man or chief at that place. This indicates some sort of logistical training facility. It's almost as Ezra sent them out to Southwestern Seminary on graduation day to recruit people to go do this. So he knew what he was doing when he sent these people out. Now look at the result. He had 18 from one clan and 20 from another. Out of all the Levites in Babylon, only 38 responded. That's pitiful. You mean only 38 were there out of a whole population? Now, 220 temple servants decided to go, and they would do the jobs that no one else could do. Actually, they did them. They're not qualified to handle the priestly or political duties. They did whatever they could to serve, but they decided to go. He's identified the problem. 
is correctly come up with a solution, but it didn't produce the results that Ezra hoped for. I think we're probably comfortable in saying, probably not. Did Ezra hold his head down and go, woe is me. We need more Levites. This is not going to work. We need to do this. What is his response? How does he handle this? Did he wring his hands and say, how in the world are we going to do this? How can we do anything with only 38 Levites? How is this going to happen? Look at verse 18. What is the response to the situation? According to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us, and he gives a description. He actually thanked God. It was not like he said, thank God, thank you, God, even though that's not enough. Even though we're going to have to work twice as hard, even though there was not enough, he thanked God anyway. He trusted God so much that he was truly thankful. He actually believed that God gave him 38 Levites. That must be enough. Now, you wonder whether it sits me upside the head? <laughs> Put it that way. When I look out, and I know we're in the middle of COVID-19, I look out and see maybe five people. Do I get all, oh, God, I must be a terrible preacher. Only five people showed up. Oh, what am I going to do next week? I didn't come up with a better sermon, a better illustration. I'm telling you, that can happen. Instead of looking out going, praise God, this is who God wanted here. Apparently, he has who he wants here at the moment, either here physically or through the Internet. But half the times we fall prey to that. Oh, I've set up this class when only five showed up, or I wish worship would have done this. We so focus on the negative. And that's one thing about this COVID-19 that's screaming out to me. Everything is so negative, chaotic, and fearful. Brothers and sisters, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom shall we fear? Nobody. Not even Satan himself has power over you and I. Now, be careful. We can't fight him alone. We need Christ. But we're more than conquerors for us who believe in Christ Jesus. We need to claim those promises because the world is watching us. And I know we have a delicate situation happening around our country between the state and the church, what the state can or cannot tell the church to do. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters out in California. The governor came out and said, you cannot meet. We need to pray for those. But as we look at COVID-19, and as we look at all the racial inequality that people are trying to take care of, are we really correctly identifying the problem, or are we really coming up with the right solution, and are we correctly identifying success when it does happen? Here's the real problem. Everything you see about social injustice, all the stuff going on, you know what the real problem is? Everybody in this room knows it. What's the real problem? <laughs> What's the real problem, brother? What's behind even Facebook is a symptom. It's sin. We can come up with all types of solutions. We have all these how-to books, how to become a better Christian in 10 easy steps. Here you go. But what's the real solution? Jesus, submission to Christ, brokenness before him with a repentant heart and humbleness. That is the right solution. But from every corner post that I see, Coming from a lot of our leaders, exception to few, we see the right answer being proposed as such and such, and that's not the right solution. And they're not really identifying the right problem. I think one reason, and I'm going to say this, I may get some angry people at me. You don't hear much from the health and wealth people right now, do you? 
and health and wealth gospel? Is it because we've been fed that for so long as a country we actually believe it? Do you know that people are being told if you don't have enough money, if you don't have the right job or the right spouse even, it's, it's not nothing wrong with you. You must be doing something wrong. You need to repent. But if you're doing things right, God will take care of that. Did God ever promise us and use the line of old country song, a rose garden? What did Jesus tell us? There will be tribulation. There will be hardship. But what did he say? But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is our hope. And I'm going to wrap this up, but I just want to say this. Don't misunderstand me. I love my grandchildren. I love my daughters. I love my wife very much. I love you guys. I want to spend time with you. But why is it we are so fighting ourselves over the scraps of the table of what the world offers when we forget to look up and see what awaits us in heaven? Maybe if I concentrate, no. When I concentrate more on the things of God, the things of this world just don't seem that luster anymore. Ezra believed that God was in charge of the results. Did you hear what I just said? God's in charge. of All he asks of us is to be faithful to the message. Don't worry about the rest. You be the example. You be the light. You follow me. You do what I've commanded you to do. I'll take care of the rest. Ezra knew his job was to be faithful to his mission, to be faithful to seek God's will, to be faithful to do God's will, and to be faithful to teach God's will. This is what Ezra was going to do, and he did, and that is success in his eyes. Maybe perhaps we identify success in the wrong manner. Which comes to that question again, what is success in your eyes? Is it results or is it faithfulness? How can you tell the difference? What do you spend more time doing? Complaining about the way things are or working every day faithfully to accomplish your mission? Ouch. Am I busy complaining what I want to see happen around here? Or am I being faithful to study his word? To prepare to preach, to prepare to go visit, to make phone calls, whatever he's calling me. Am I being faithful to the call God placed in my life long before I came here to Forsberg Baptist Church? And if I'm doing that, that is success. That is putting faith into action. Faithfully doing what God's called you to do and trusting him for the results. This pandemic, church attendance is low. Giving is down. All this negative stuff is happening. We have to acknowledge it. But here's where the rubber hits the road. Are we going to remain faithful and see this thing through, trusting God with the results? That's where the rubber really hits the road. What can separate us from the love of Christ? No height, no death. No things that come, no things present. No created thing. Not even the devil himself can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I always read that in Romans. Like Paul, Paul when he writes, he has a very long on, on sentence. So it may be like verses long. 
I could just see him getting excited as he wrote that. Like, that's just a punchline. I'm like, yeah, you just want to stand up and go, yeah, that's right, Paul. So I want to encourage you. Be faithful to the mission God's placed on your heart as individual and as a church. He will see us through this. Perhaps tomorrow the trumpet will blow and we'll all go home. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I agree. And then part of me goes, wait, how about that person has given their life to Christ yet? That's why it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. I don't think I'll be able to sit there and give him a high five. Hey, what's up, Jesus? No, I'm, I'm going to be down the door with everybody else. Crying out, holy, holy, holy. And that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So when we deal with problems, correctly identify it, just like Ezra did. He didn't look at the circumstances. He saw the real problem. Second of all, he came up with the right solution. He sent Pacific people who have Pacific knowledge that can speak to the issue. And you know where to send them. Specifically to a place. And then he identified credit. He could have said, 38, go out and get more. What do you do? The hand of God was upon us. And we have these 38. Praise God, let's go. What a story that I believe speaks directly where you are not at today. What is God laying on your heart? What is it he's putting on your heart? You can come to him. You can tell him anything you want. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. Always like that. You think when I pray, God goes, oh, I didn't know that. No, he doesn't do that. He knows it. And one thing I've learned, I'm going to conclude with this. The one thing I've learned in my walk with Christ, that the areas of my life I feel the more pressure and stress is usually the areas of my life I haven't completely given it over to him. I haven't quite just let it go. Then it dawned on me one time. If I trust him with my eternal Security, why can't I trust him with money? If I trust him with my eternal security, why can't I trust him with my daughters and my wife? And that's one lesson, not necessarily Tammy, that I learned real hard when our girls grew up. It's letting go. I still worry about him, I still pray for him, I still do things for him. But Tammy and I, are, we recognize, okay, we raise him, God. The way you want it, they're in your hands. They weren't really ours to begin with. You gave them to us as a gift. And now we give that gift back to you. But I tell you, that's easier said than done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. As has been stated here this morning, that you you don't change. You're always the same. You're always there. And your love and mercy have no bounds. Father, we can't even comprehend how deep and wide it is, but we know it to be true. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room and also watching over the Internet. That, Father, right now they will feel your peace just wrap around them in the middle of this pandemic and everything going on. 
Remind them, dear God, what the real solution is. And help us as your people to take that solution out to the people. Not just by word, but also by deed. And may we get quick to give you the praise that's due you whenever we see any results. If no results, Father, we trust you for it all. Thank you for loving us, for your forgiveness and mercy. Continue to speak and continue to move among us here today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?